everybody, let's find our places. Again, welcome. Thanks for coming. Hey, you know, the, the faithful few, huh? Look around, you know, Snowmageddon kept a lot of people out. You made it. God bless you. This is awesome. I mean, there's all levels of persecution. This is our level. It, it is. It's still winter, so I take comfort in that. You know, when we, when we of course, next week, time change. We pass the 21st of March. If it's still snowing like this, you know, I, y'all pray for me because, uh, you know, it'll be bad for me. But, but it's still winter, so, you know, it's okay. Um, hey, welcome back, y'all. Oh, I should say that for me. Welcome back. I'm glad to be back, really, and uh, I'm glad to be able to get back into what we're studying in the Bible. And, and it's, it's been a good Bible study. It's, it's been not our favorite subject. In fact, we're in the book of Romans, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Romans. We're in chapter number two, and we're going to finish up chapter number two today. And if you've been with us in this study since the new year, we've been kind of coming through the first part of Romans, obviously, verse by verse. The, we sectioned out the first three chapters, basically. And the first three chapters of Romans really deal with the brokenness of humanity due to sin. And so the first part, as Romans enters into this discussion of all the some great theological thoughts and, and really more centered around salvation than anything else but uh, the Lord through the Apostle Paul just does a masterful job of very conclusively building this case and showing not only how we can have eternal life in Christ but why we absolutely need it and that's and that's the beginning chapters it's all about our sin it's it's not our favorite subject uh, it's it's kind of bad news um, but it's not all bad because in the sense that when God points out the bad stuff, really he's doing it out of love. What he's doing is he's giving us the information we need so that we will recognize in of ourselves there's nothing that's worthy eternally and we absolutely need a Savior. We need Christ to come and to save us from this otherwise hopeless condition of sin that we find ourselves in. And so when we started this series on sin and brokenness, I, I told you that it was going to be seven weeks of bad news, and you know, congratulations for hanging in there. We're at week number five, okay? So there's only a couple more after this, and we will turn the corner hard and uh, hopefully not have to look back. But with that in mind, let me just give you kind of some update as well, because uh, this has been announced in previous weeks, and if you were here or not, you may or may not remember, but... Uh, the third week of this coming month, this month, where is March now? The 23rd, so it'll be three weeks from today. Uh, the 23rd through the 26th, Sunday through Wednesday, we will be hosting our annual Spring Bible Conference. And uh, our Spring Bible Conference this year is going to focus on the subject of holiness. Now, that's something that I felt like the Lord would have us do a long time ago, even before I decided that I would go into Romans for this year as our, as our regular Bible study. And, and I just want you to understand that this theme of holiness is so critically important to our lives. It is a Christian value to live our lives wholly before the Lord is what he expects. And what we see, y'all, in Christianity today is a slow fade away from what is right to what is situationally right. And, and people just figure out a way to excuse their own version of sinful behavior while maybe looking across the fence at somebody else's sin that they particularly don't participate in. And, and, and it's just a, it's a real problem, and it is my personal opinion that the, great, the single greatest reason why we don't wholeheartedly serve the Lord with all that we have is very simple. It's carnality. It's the fact that we just are too full of ourselves to allow ourselves to be full of the Holy Spirit and allow him to take us and to use us in ways that we otherwise would not choose for ourselves. And I have been praying for months that we would have, and I realize that as a human being, we cannot schedule revival on the calendar per se, but that's my prayer, that God will bring true revival to First Baptist Church in a way far beyond what we have already even experienced, that many more people will fully surrender. Listen, y'all, if we would seriously 
Just be willing. Each and every one of us as an individual, just worry about your own self. If we would be willing to look in the mirror of God's word and ask him to open up the eyes of our understanding and to see our lives the way he sees our lives, and then if there are any corrections necessary as the Lord reveals that to you, that you would be willing to make those corrections, that you would be willing to surrender to his lordship, that you would be willing and desirous, enthusiastic even, to do exactly what he would ask of you to do. And so here we are walking through Romans. And for seven weeks in a row, and that seventh week will be the last Sunday before then we enter into the conference. Can I just give you a word of fatherly advice? If you take care of any potential problems that you might be wrestling with in your heart right now, the conference will be a whole lot more fun. <laughs> but if you harbor this thing all the way to the end, you know, and, and I mean, you know, that Mark Trotter's going to come and he's going to preach and it's going to be awesome and, and he will do what he does best and, and we will see what the scriptures say. And, and, and if you go into that thing still fighting with sin in your heart and your soul, it'll be uncomfortable. Don't stay home, come. But God desires for us to live this kind of a life. And, and so I say all that to say that even though we're dealing with subjects that are not our favorite feel-good subjects, they are for our good. And, and God deals with these things because he loves us. Now, in Romans chapter 2 particularly, a couple of weeks ago as uh, Rich kicked off the chapter, he pointed out very clearly that really the theme coming into chapter number 2 is all about judgment. And how God judges sinful man. The, the nature of our sinfulness was made very clear in chapter number one. And how God deals with judging us as a result of that is made very clear in chapter number two. And what we saw was from verses one through 16, God deals with the sinfulness of Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish population, the majority of the world, okay? And, and we saw that. And in verses 17 to 29, and that is our text for today, the focus now shifts to the Jews, to the Jews and the Jewish people, and how God deals with them slightly differently, okay? Uniquely in the sense of their circumstance, yet the same in the context of holiness, without a doubt. You need to understand that the, the Jews were known for being very religious people. They were serious, they were devout, they were fanatical about their religion. And, and there are details of the Jewish religion, and really if you just went through the Old Testament, the, the majority of it, specifically, most specifically from the time of the giving of the law of Moses, which is the majority of your Old Testament. I mean, there's just a lot that deals with the details of how they played that out. But what I want to do for us this morning is to talk more practically and in general about how really the things that we'll see about the Jews in these 12, 13 verses really deal, to, deal with any group of religious people and how God, therefore, then judges those people. So the title of today's message is God's Judgment of the Religious. And the specific context is the Jews, but really you'll see it can apply to any one of us. So with that in mind, if you'll follow along, I'm going to start reading in Romans 2, starting in verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, Teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. 
Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Now there's a lot of stuff in there, but really I think you'll see it breaks down fairly clearly. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at some of the details. Heavenly Father, as we look at this part of the scripture that you've given to us, and as we consider the specific application to the Jewish people and their abuse of the revelation that was given to them so generously, Lord, we desire to understand what it means to us. We desire to learn from that example, and we desire to make the proper application. So that's our prayer, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning, that you would prick our hearts and help us to see and understand exactly what it is each and every one of us might need to learn as we individually on our journey try and seek you and understand where we need to be and what it is that may be lacking. And if there's things that need to be decided, if there's changes that need to be made, I I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to do that. And I pray as a whole for this church that that you would cleanse us, that you would help us to turn from those wicked things that might exist and that we would just wholeheartedly serve you from our heart and in our spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first things that we're going to see in the first several verses is what I'm calling the characterization of the religious. The characterization of the religious, verses 17 to 20, and it starts out by saying, Behold, thou art called a Jew. And and you need to understand this, and maybe you already do and maybe you don't, but there's different ways that the Israelites are referred to. If they are called Israelites, an Israelite is the identity that's given to them nationally. Their nationalistic identity is that they are from Israel. They are Israelites. If they are referred to as Hebrew, the Hebrew designation is given to them ethnically. They are ethnic Hebrews. But a Jew is religiously. They are Jews by religion. And so, behold, thou art called a Jew. He is specifically dealing with not their national identity and not their ethnic identity. He's dealing with their religious identity. And that's important as we're dealing with this is the character, this is the people group that he's dealing with. And he gives four specific characteristics as we walk through these next several verses that you have printed in your notes for you that really can be applied to any religious group on the planet. And the first one is that they're comfortable. They're comfortable in their religion. It says that they rest in the law in verse 17. They, they can rest. They're, they're happy that they have what they have. Now, the law of Moses, without a doubt, was truly God's word. I mean, it was the right set of scriptures. It was the right word from the right God. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that the law of Moses, it's perfect, it's pure, it's holy, And it was given to this people group. It was given to the Jews. And they had absolute comfort. They had a sense of confidence that they could could rest in the fact that they had heard directly from God. Do you know that that's also a characteristic of any truly religious person, regardless of their religion? At some level, one of the characteristics of any religious person is is that their religion, for whatever reason, culturally, uh, they maybe inherited it through their ancestry, it just fits. It's kind of who we are. And it does become not necessarily as much a conviction of thought as it becomes just a part of your daily experience and your culture. And that can be true of any particular world religion. And you think about some of the larger world religions, and generally they have a geographic region of the world where the majority of the population are those people, whether they be Muslims or whether they be Buddhists or Hindus or whatever they might be. And, and they just, it just fits for them. It's just kind of who they are. It's kind of, they, they rest in the fact that I am of this religious group. 
And it becomes a part of the way that they live their daily life and understand the interaction on a daily basis. Because that's true, it makes international missions, cross-cultural missions, very difficult. Because when you go to lead somebody to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ who has grown up in a different religious system, for them to believe and put their full trust in Jesus Christ also means that they are virtually denying the entire cultural norm of life that they understood. And that becomes very, very high-priced for them. Now the Lord says, yes, it is what it is. Come to me and surrender all. Uh, the, 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 The call is no different. Yet, nevertheless, it is a characteristic of religious people. They're comfortable in their religion. And that's how the Jews were. The next thing we see about them is that they're committed. They're dedicated to their God. There's no question about it. It goes on in verse 17. It says, they make their boast in God. I mean, let's face it. Jehovah, God, of the Old Testament, well, of all time, of course, but as he's revealed in the Old Testament, he got the Jews out of a lot of messes, didn't he? I mean, they got themselves in a, in a mess time and time and time again, and God loved them and was faithful and got them out. Oh, it wasn't always easy. Sometimes they had a rough road. But I mean, God was faithful and he bailed them out. Ultimately to the point where over centuries they can look back and they can say, wow, I make my boast in my God. My God's bigger than your God. You know, I mean, they just, they saw it happen. I mean, God absolutely showed up and did what he did. And they literally... We're proud of that. They literally had no doubt in their mind. There was no thoughts of wavering that maybe our God isn't all that. He's not all that powerful. He's not all that strong. They were absolutely committed to this fact that he is who he is. In fact, so much so, as we'll see a little bit later on, that they they required a physical operation on the male children of their, of their group. They were so dedicated to their God that they actually altered their body. They were so dedicated to their God that they altered their diet and there were foods that were not allowed to be eaten and so they would not eat those foods. I mean, these were some committed folk. They were religious. And you know what? Truly religious people are committed to their system. They learn the rules and they live by those rules and they, they, they sacrifice, they serve, they do things. That's what religious people do. The third characteristic that we see is that they're convinced. <laughs> they're sure that they're right. They've done some study. It says in verse 18, they, they know his will. They, they approve things that are more excellent. And you know what, that's what, Religious people do. They, if they're truly religious, you know, we use that word as an adjective that so-and-so, he does this activity religiously with dedication. Uh, they are dedicated to this thing and they have done their homework and they have come to some level of conviction that they actually know the teachings. They understand what the writings are. They understand what the rules are. They understand what's required of them. And they have personal convictions. This is the right way. They approve that way as the best way. Because if they didn't approve that way as the best way, then they would get on board with a different way that they thought was the best way. That's what religious people do. In contrast to the Gentiles, just an average, non-believing, non-religious person. Okay, These are the religious. This is who they are. And the last thing is that they're confident. They're they're proud to be a part of this group. And in fact, in the specific uh, scripture given in verse 19, it says that they're confident that they themselves are pretty cool. (laughs) That they're a guide to the blind and a light to those that are in darkness, an instructor, a teacher. Listen, they're confident, but here's where they maybe get a little wrong. They're they're self-confident. They're confident that they themselves are pretty awesome. <laughs> they've got some skill. They've got some knowledge. They've got some ability, and they're pretty proud of it. That's a typical situation for a religious person. 
They think that they can help other people, and they probably are skilled. They probably are intelligent. They probably do know some things. They probably have helped people. But you know, in Romans chapter 2, again, the context is specifically the Jews. And you've got to understand that while we make application to any of the world religions, unlike the other world religions, Judaism was the right religion. Amen? I mean, it was the right one. They had the right God. They had the, the right scriptures, right? I mean, they had the right information. But the characteristics apply to any of them, to any of us. It, it matters not if a person is Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Protestant, Baptist. It matters not. These are characteristics of religious people. Are you religious? Listen, in, in your heart you're thinking, well, I can't say yes. I don't, that's not good. It's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out bad for me if I say, you know what, we're all, let, me just, let me just peel back the curtain. We're all religious. We are. We are all, listen, those are, these are not bad, by the way, these are not bad characteristics. We're going to clarify how it all is supposed to put together, but these are not bad characteristics. I mean, what's wrong with having those characteristics in your life? You're here today on snowy day, right? We're religious, right? This is awesome. But what God's trying to communicate to us in Romans chapter 2 is that these characteristics of religion alone don't really matter at all. If all you have are these things without something more that we're about to look at, it's not enough. And you can be a religious Baptist. You can be a religious Catholic. You can be a religious Jew. If all you have is that form of the things that you do and that knowledge, that's not enough. That's not enough. God's looking for something more. And so what he does is, is he reveals that to us. And that's our second point, the revelation of the judgment. It's all about judgment, and he's going to reveal to us how, indeed, he's going to carry out judgment on people who are religious. So what you have here in the next few verses is a series of questions. And really what you have is, in these questions, a really good picture of what religious people can expect to have to answer to at the ultimate judgment when they stand before God. You ever wonder what it's going to be like at the ultimate judgment? Well, if you're religious, let me just tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to be like these five questions. That's what it's going to be like. That's what God wants to know from you, religious person, what it is that your life has been all about. So these are five questions. I call them five penetrating questions. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest that a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Pause. Sacrilege is a word that doesn't, we don't use a lot. Sacrilege is a word that appears in this verse of the scripture and in no other verse anywhere else in the scripture. Okay? If you're not sure what sacrilege means, join the club. Got to look it up. Okay? I looked it up. Let me help you. Sacrilege literally just means the misuse of what God considers to be holy. The word that's translated sacrilege is also in many other places translated the temple or something like that. In other words, the things that God has set apart as holy, when we misuse those, it's sacrilege. So you preach against idols, and yet we kind of become idolaters. We misuse the things that are actually holy. And the last question, thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? So really, what God is asking these religious people is, do you practice what you preach? Do you practice the things that you teach other people that they must do? Another way that we say it sometimes is, do you walk the talk? You talk about the right things, but does it translate into your life? Does it translate into your daily behavior and your walk? Do you walk the talk? Do you practice 
what you preach? Or are you like the Pharisees, rather, that would say, do as I say, but not as I do? (laughs) Those of us who are parents and we have kids, and especially when they're younger and they're coming up and kids are paying attention, and parents, if you do not practice what you preach, you can fake a lot of people out, but your kids got your number. Your kids got it figured out. And if you live a hypocritical life, and that is the theme, by the way, the theme of the judgment of the religious is hypocrisy. If you have a hypocritical life, God is judging you. He will judge you based on that. The issue is hypocrisy. It it all points to all five of those questions are just different ways of saying, okay, you've got the right Bible and you've got the right information and you're even telling other people about it, which is all fine, but if it's not affecting your life, it doesn't matter. It doesn't help you unless it affects your behavior. And when it affects your behavior, then that's really what we need to get at. Nobody likes a hypocrite, right? Nobody likes a hypocrite. I mean, why would you want to tolerate somebody who's a hypocrite especially if that person is in a position to tell you what to do you know what i'm talking about i mean would you really want to go to a yellow tooth dentist <laughs> really i mean would you really want to go to a marriage counselor who's divorced i mean would you want to go to a 300-pound fitness instructor? I mean, wouldn't you look at that and say, uh, you know, hey, teach yourself first, and then maybe I'll listen to you. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, we do it in all aspects of life, right? We don't want to live that way. And these people are people, for example, that would give you counsel on how you ought to live your life or how you ought to take care of your body or whatever the case might be. Well, in the world of religion, again, the context is religion. And what we do is we come to people and we say, thus saith the Lord, this is how you must live your life if your life is going to be right before a holy God. We, we help people know how they are supposed to live. We tell them what they should do. And God says, okay, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Are you living out the things that you say to others? Religion, on one hand, gets a bad rap. We dog out religion and say, we don't have a religion, we have a relationship. And that's true. And and we'll we'll talk about that, okay? But, But... Religion is not bad. Religion is just this, and this is what you need to understand, and we'll look in James chapter 1 in just a second. But religion is just about man doing all he knows to do with good works to try and achieve something at the level of God, to try and reach God. That just doesn't work. In of itself alone, it just doesn't work. But somehow or another, the the religious effort is basically do good things and hopefully earn favor with God. That's what it's all about. Well, by the way, doing good things is a good thing, right? And James chapter 1 and verse 27 defines for you religion is not a bad thing, but it is absolutely associated with your works. It's not a thing to, to get you saved, but it's okay Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. What is pure religion? This is it. Here you go. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Works. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. Works. Religion is all about you doing good works. Defined by the Bible. That's what it is. And the thing that's in common of any religion is they think that that's going to earn them some sort of favor with God. That's why people have the mistaken idea that if I do more good works than bad and if I put them in a scale and God will judge me and I'll be okay eternally because my good works, I didn't do really bad things. Well, that's not the gospel. That's a different issue. But the fact of the matter is religion has to do with good works. The bad news is is that 
Isaiah 64, for example, verse 6 says that all of our righteousness, the very best that we could ever muster on our own, they're like filthy rags before God. His holiness and his righteousness so far exceeds what we could imagine. That even the good things that we do, and we, we judge on the curve, right? We grade on the curve. We think we're okay, and God's like, yeah, but the best you got is garbage. Sorry. You need a savior. So he reveals to us how he's going to judge, and how he's going to judge is on this issue of hypocrisy. Again, getting back to the Jews, they had the right religion. They had the right God. They had the right scriptures. But the problem is they were hypocrites. And even worse, their hypocrisy kept others from coming to know God. Who hasn't heard that before? How many of us have talked to people and tried to encourage them to know the Lord and maybe invite them to church or whatever, and people say, ah, I've done church. I won't go to church anymore. Because those hypocrites, those hypocrites in the church. And you know what? The sad truth is, there are hypocrites in the church. And that shouldn't matter at the end of the day. We all answer before the Lord and everybody has to decide. But nevertheless, hypocrisy is revolting. Hypocrisy repels people. And when we do it in the name of the Lord, it repels people from the Lord. And that's what he says when you get down to verse number 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Because of your hypocrisy, Jews, the name of God is blasphemed among the people that need to know me. Let me ask you a question. You think that makes God mad? You think God's upset? Look, I can imagine as though God might say this. All right, you don't want to believe in me? That's fine, I gave you a free will. Don't hinder the other guy from having the chance to believe in me. That kind of makes me mad. That's what I would say if I was God. I'm not. But I can imagine that he might think that way, can't you? Can't you imagine that he would think, okay, look, you for yourself decide. But the problem is nobody lives unto himself. You're influencing people around you. And you name the name of Christ and you live like the devil. Other people are like, oh yeah, I don't want no part of that. My life is every bit as good as that guy who says he's a Christian. Why do I need to bother going to that church, for example? And we hear it all the time. Well, that was the case with the Jews. Here's a good self-examination question for you to consider. I didn't put it in your notes. You might want to jot it down. Consider this. What would this church be like if every single member was just like you? I'm not talking about culturally. I'm not talking about your personality. I'm talking about your faithfulness and your walk with the Lord. Your, your willingness to serve Him, your, your verbal witness to others, your self-sacrificing service. If every member was at your level, would the church be better off or worse off? Hmm. Something to think about. So God, in His judgment, and that's the theme, God judges man based on what he, that man, is trusting to guide his life. So for the Gentiles, in the first 16 verses, what we saw more than anything else is that God judges them based on their conscience. Right? If you look back to verse number 12, it says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. So you say, Lord, I never saw a Bible. I never heard about Jesus. Okay, so let's see what your conscience moral standard would have been and as Ryan shared with us last week that moral standard whatever it is you can have your own standard of righteousness which is way lower than God's but because you are a sinner by nature you are not even able to live up to your own moral standard you say aha young people are thinking this because that's what I would have thought when I was young I'll make my standard like zero and I got it made you can't do it it's impossible because deep in your heart and your soul, you just know there's some stuff that's just wrong, whether you had a Bible or not. And because you're a sinner, you will fail, even at your own standard. So the Gentiles, they don't have the word, they just kind of live off their conscience. So God says, oh, that's what you got? That's what you're trusting in? I'll judge you by your conscience. The Jew, on the other hand, 
right? They have their religion. They trust in their religion, which means they trust in their works. So God judges them based on their works. He says, okay, you got all this info, good for you. How's that working out for you? You teach all these things, are you living those things? You trust in your works, I'll judge you by your works. The good news for us, truly born-again Christians, what do we trust in? We trust in Jesus. So where does, how does God judge us? Well, he doesn't, he judges Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That's the, somebody ought to say amen, come on. Amen. That's the work of the cross, man. That's why Jesus had to die, because we couldn't do it. And we put all our faith and our trust in him and his sacrificial atonement for us. He died in our place. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is as good of a place as any where it says, For he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the whole work of the cross is the fact that we put all of our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, paying the penalty for sin for us. And God, we trust in Christ, so God judges what we trust in, Christ And that judgment was done. And he rose triumphant the third day and was resurrected and were victors. And that's the life. That's what he expects. But let's just just talk about hypocrisy for just a second. Because, I mean, let's just be honest, y'all, seriously. I don't care if you're young or old. We all got a little hypocrite in us. Amen? I do. I mean, we all got a little hypocrite in us. Come on. And here's the funny thing, you know, because here's, we're really good at finding the hypocrisy in the next guy and just absolutely glossing over our own. And that's wrong. I'm going to tell you something. It's impossible for you not to be kind of a hypocrite. And I say that as honestly as I know how to say. Because what is it that we preach? All this stuff. The whole Bible. <laughs> By the way, who's living the whole Bible? Nobody. Jesus. And the only way you can live your Christian life is Christ living through you. I'm required to stand up here and preach the whole counsel of God. Can I just give you a tip so I can just save time? Don't write them on the connection card. I blow it. I'll help you. And if you know about stuff that I blow it in, that's nothing. I'll tell you more. (laughs) We all do. The point is, listen, to live that life, it's hard, man. It's hard. Which means that you ought to have some grace for one another, doesn't it? You ought to be tolerant and help out. That doesn't mean you wink at sin. It doesn't mean that sin's okay. It just means that you give people some space. I just got to tell you, living the life that I live and having the job description that I have and just being an observant guy that I am, I have developed a skill over the years. It's not always a wonderful thing, but I have become quite the student of hypocrisy. I can spot it. And and you know what? I don't enjoy looking for it. And I don't even care. I don't even want to look for it. But let me tell you when that that mode kicks in for me. And I'm just just being honest with you. My, My find the hypocrisy in somebody else mode only kicks in when somebody steps up and starts religiously judging others and immediately pointing fingers and pointing at other people's faults and sins and difficulties. Because as soon as they start doing that, in my mind I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Just give it a little time. Because the fact is we're all a little hypocritical, right? And all I got to do is watch you for a little while. Now, in case you're wondering, I don't keep files. I don't, you know, because you'll do it again. I'll do it again. Listen, it's not hard. I can find something in you if, but I, listen, honestly, I don't, I don't do that unless you open your big mouth and start attacking one of the brothers or sisters in an unrighteous way. Then I just start paying attention. And maybe it'll come to a conversation and maybe it won't, I don't know. All I'm trying to say is, we're all a little hypocrite, and we ought to be careful. Can I tell you why a lot of the false world religions are popular and why there's billions and billions and billions of people deceived by them? It's because a lot of the false world religions, probably all of them really, allow you 
as a member of that religion to kind of do whatever you want. That's not totally true. It's, it's a gross generalization, I know. But the point is this. In a lot of the religious systems, you kind of do whatever you want. And there's some wicked, vile behavior that's done in the name of religion, right? But as long as you go back home and you do your little sacrifice, and whatever the little services you have to do and to offer your little thing at the temple, or whatever it is you do, which, by the way, usually has something to do with paying some money, <laughs> then you're okay. You're absolved. You're all right. And that's popular. People like that. Look, I want to live my life and then just every so often go and give a confession, go and give an offering, go and bow down at a temple, or go and do whatever I can. And then I'll just go back and do what I want again. And that's why they're so popular. And that's why when other religious people see you, a true born-again Christian, whose life has been changed, who live a separated, holy life, they think you're a nut. They think you're a fanatic. They think you're half crazy. Your total devotion to Jesus Christ actually alters your behavior every minute of every day. They think you're crazy. You don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls that do, you know. I mean, you've changed your life. And they're like, really? It bothers them. 1 Peter chapter 4, great couple of verses. Verses 3 and 4, notice. For the time past of our life, our, the Christians, the time past, before we were Christians, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So he says, look, now that you're saved, whatever level of sinful behavior was habitual for you before that time, whether you're saved at age 12 or whether you're saved at age 52, whatever it is, the amount of sinful behavior you had up to that time, it is sufficient. It's plenty. It's enough. It suffices us. There's no need for you to have to continue in revelings and banquetings and all of these things and excess of wine, okay? Because it's enough. We're done now. We have moved on. The verse continues. Wherein they, those outside this group, the non-Christian people, maybe your old friends, think it's strange, notice, that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. So you had old friends and you used to do crazy stuff with your old friends and you get saved and God cleans you up and you don't live that way anymore and they keep inviting you out to do those things and you say, no thanks, I don't do that anymore. I love Jesus now and I don't do that anymore and they're starting to get mad. They're like, why? Why don't you do anything? And you're like, that's just my thing and you might even not even preach the gospel to them. But they're getting the message because they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It used to be okay and you have decided it's not okay. And since you have decided it's not okay for you, even though you're not saying it, you're kind of judging that it's not okay for me. <laughs> and I don't appreciate it. And the verse ends with, they speak evil of you. <laughs> they speak evil of you. Why? What's the difference between your religion and their religion? Well, yours changed your life. Theirs is just some set of rituals, and they still live a vile life. That's the difference. And that's how God judges it. Listen, <sighs> take a deep breath. Don't worry. Be happy. God will take care of it all. I promise. He'll, he'll handle every detail. He absolutely will. But know this the revelation of God's judgment is that He judges the religious based on hypocrisy, based on hypocrisy. Once he reveals that standard, then he goes on to explain it more completely, and that's our last point, the explanation of the priority, verses 25 to 29, the explanation of the priority. And he goes into this illustration of circumcision. Now, to get the background on circumcision, you would have to go back to Genesis chapter 17, and we're not going to go and study through that together, but basically that's the time when Abraham, at that time he was called Abram, this is the point where God changes his name to Abraham. He's 99 years old, and God gives him an unconditional promise of saying, Abram, at this point, they're, they're childless. He and Sarah, they have no child, okay? 
of their own. And he says, look, I'm going to make you, Abraham, a father of many nations. Okay? And he doesn't say, if you do this or if you do that. He says, I'm just going to do it. God just said, I'm just going to do it. It's an unconditional promise. And he says, and I'm going to be a God unto you. In other words, we're going to enter into this relationship, Abe, and I'm going to do some stuff for you. And I'm going to be your God. You are going to have a relationship with me. We are going to walk together. And here's what I'm going to do. As a sign to just show that this is the deal we got going on together, I'm going to ask you to do something. The Bible in those, that passage of Scripture, it calls it the token of this covenant relationship between Abraham and God. The sign of this covenant between God and man, okay, is this thing of circumcision. A, a physical operation done on male children at the eight-day mark after birth. That's how it was laid out. It's just a sign. It's just a picture, okay? It's a sign, it's an outward sign or a symbol that there exists behind that sign some inward relational reality with God. It's not all di that different from a wedding ring. It's, it's a sign that I have entered into a real relational covenant relationship with my wife. And I wear the ring. And if I happen to not wear the ring, I still have the reality of the relationship, but if I don't wear the ring, I kind of get in trouble. So I wear the ring. <laughs> I like wearing the ring. But it tells people, if they were to look, you know, you know people who have ever, not that I've ever, uh, gone to singles bars or whatever, you know, they're looking at that finger. Anything on that finger? Okay, it's safe. Okay. It's the sign that there's something else going on. See? And so the issue is this outward versus inward thing. And I called those five questions earlier penetrating questions because they penetrate the outward exterior to delve into the inward reality. You who say and do these things, do you do them yourself? And you're going past the outward to get to the inward. In our text, the last few verses, verses 28 and 29, it says, For he is not a Jew, a true Jew in the eyes of God, I guess which is one outwardly, meaning only outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And what God is doing in this explanation of how he judges and how he lays this out is he's just making very clear that the inward is greater than the outward. What is going on inside your heart and life is way more important than the outward appearance to others. So therefore, this whole circumcision thing, and that happened to be the one main sign that they had, but it could be anything for a, a different number of groups. Anyways, it's conditional. It's conditional. In verses 25, 26, and 27, the little word if appears four times. Which means that the validity of your outward expression is conditional upon the reality of what's inside of you. If there is no reality of an inward relationship with God, whatever you appear on the outside is invalid. It's, it's invalid. It doesn't matter. So there's a problem. Because over time, here's what religious people tend to do. Over time, even if they had a good start, they, in their flesh, will begin to overemphasize the outward appearance and little by little ignore the inward reality. In other words, they flip the, the, the equation and they make outward greater than inward. You know what we call that today? We call that legalism. We call that legalism. Legalism literally is just judging someone's inward spirituality solely based on their outward appearance. And if you've been guilty of that, just know that it's wrong. Modern forms of legalism usually take on all kind of different things that are popular to look at on the outside to determine whether or not you think there's some inward spirituality going on or not. 
the way people dress or the way they wear their hair or the kind of music they listen to or what kind of movies they watch or if they even watch them at all, if they partake in alcohol or cigarettes or they play cards or dance. or I mean, you could, the list just goes on and on and on. And if you do these things that you shouldn't do, then certainly you have no relationship with God. Or if you don't do some of those things that you ought to do, certainly you don't have a relationship with God. And we judge based on the outward and really don't have any idea what's going on inside. And that's a problem. That's a problem. That's why God says in John 7, 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. The outward is conditional upon the inward. The inward's what really matters. And that's the next point. It, it not only is conditional, it counts. <laughs> and literally, verse 26 says that it is counted. If you have it on the inside, even a person who is a Gentile by nature, even a person who in his flesh has never had the physical operation, okay, it is counted for him for circumcision. In other words, the inward putting away of the flesh in your daily behavior, in your walk with the Lord, the inward reality of your relationship not controlled by the flesh counts for circumcision. This one big sign that the Jews had. And again, the audience is Jews. So the Jews, when you say circumcision, bam, they know what they're talking about. And he says, look, don't be proud of the fact that you're of the people that have an operation. Be proud of the fact that you're of the people that live and walk with me. <laughs> That's what it's all about, right? So, like I said, if I forget my ring one day and I don't have the outward sign, if I, listen, my wife may or may not love the fact that I forgot my ring one day, but as long as I continue to behave like a married man, ought to behave, it's probably okay. It'd probably be okay. And I'll find the ring and I'll put it on, okay. But if I don't have it, you can't just automatically judge that I'm not married. You can't automatically, you just can't say, oh my goodness, oh, what's wrong with his relationship? He doesn't have his ring on. But isn't that kind of what we do? Isn't that what, isn't that what religious people do? So it's the internal one that matters regardless of whether or not you have the outward appearance or not, right? It says in verse 29, and circumcision, the one that counts, is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. You know that that was God's intent all along for circumcision? This was just a way to physically present something so that the Jews would get the real message. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. God says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Change your inside life with me. That's what I want. In Colossians, in the New Testament, starting in verse 8, it says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Stop there for a second. That word, I want to just clarify, that word spoil, that, that does not mean like ruin. That does not mean like you, you left a banana out on the counter too long and it's spoiled. No. That literally, that word to spoil, lest any man spoil you, it comes from the word that we would use like the spoils of war. You go to war and you defeat your enemy and you take all their stuff Right, The Jews did that over and over and over again when they entered the promised land. And they would take their wealth and their riches for their own. In other words, to, it, let, lest any man spoil you, lest any man profit from you. <laughs> There's always a buck involved somewhere. And how are they going to do that with philosophy and vain deceit? Jump down to verse 11, in context. In whom also, talking of Christ, ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands. We're not talking about a physical thing. We're talking about a spiritual thing. What is that? In the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He goes on, he says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Not the operation of man, the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So we had a beautiful illustration of a baptism. And a baptism is not all that different in this context. 
Is it the water that saves a man who goes in the water? No, absolutely not. There is a pre-existing real relationship with God and you get in the tank and you get baptized just to show everybody this is a sign that there's something really going on in my heart with God. That's what that's all about. Okay? Is it possible that somebody can get baptized and not be saved? Of course. We do our diligence to talk with them and think that they understand it, but certainly it's possible that somebody could lie or make up a story or be confused and they get dunked, they get wet, but that doesn't mean anything. What really matters is what's on the inside, right? And that's this whole idea of circumcision. So here God is explaining that without the inward circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the power of the flesh from affecting your soul, the outward is just legalism. It's just legalism. And you know what? It's of no value, <laughs> before God. None. On the flip side, if you possess a real, vibrant, living reality, a walk with a living Christ on a daily basis, one that puts away the daily sins of the flesh, one that allows you to be spirit-filled and to, and to make the right decisions in your life, let me ask you something. Does it really matter what the outside looks like? Does it really matter? Okay, I get it. There's, everything can be taken to an evil extreme. But without letting your mind go to the evil extreme, yes, of course, people can become immodest in their dress and that's wrong, of course. The point is this. If somebody who loves Jesus and walks with him doesn't look like you expect him to look, based on Romans chapter 2, isn't that okay? Shouldn't we all be okay with that? Because that's what God says. The real Jew, it's not one that's outward. The real circumcision, it's not one that's outward. It's one that's inward. I get it that at some level, when your heart's right with God, you're sensitive to the ideas of others. But that's not how it's judged. So what we need to do is just make sure that we all possess the inward reality, amen? that we're not just living some religious, legalistic existence and going through the motions of some Baptist ritual. We're religious. It's okay. Just make sure you got the goods. That's what it's all about. And, it, and if you do, like at the very end of verse 29, it says, if that's you, if, if you got the goods, okay, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You are praised of God for getting it right. Making the main thing the main thing. So let's talk about personal application. Are you religious? Yes, you are. Almost without exception. I don't know everybody, but if you come to church regularly, it's a part of your culture, it's what you do. Listen, you're comfortable in, what you, in who you are and your religion. You, you're, you're committed to it. You're convinced. You're confident. Man, that's awesome. Okay, then the next question is, do you practice what you preach? And that's really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Listen, y'all, we're spending seven weeks going through what God says about these things. We're going to have a conference emphasizing this thing. And I'm telling you, now is the time. If God has pricked your heart, if there is something in your life, and you just know, listen, forget the, forget the general, we're never good enough. Forget that. God is specifically saying, you are blowing it here. And we are not moving forward until you get this thing right whatever that thing is for you if God is whispering that to you today can, can I encourage you to please do that I mean what are you waiting for you don't want to carry that with you all the way to the judgment you want to get it right now the ultimate question is the last one are you sure that you possess the inward reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ because if not the fate of the religious lost is an eternity in hell. And Jesus made that really clear in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, when he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? These are religious people. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
There will be people in that category. You do not want to be one of them. <laughs> if there's any thought in your mind that what you have been doing in your life is having some level of committed faithfulness to your favorite religious system, it may be Baptist. And yet you're just really not 100% sure that, God forbid, your physical life ended today, that you would have an eternal home in heaven because of what he said, because of what he did for you, not because of how good you are. Man, take care of that. That's why he wrote Romans 1, 2, and 3, to drive us to Christ. So let's do that. Let's just take a minute and let's all bow our heads and let's pray.